Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area, following program True Crime Uncensored is brought to you with a psychic vengeance by Magic Matt Allen, who knows what you're thinking at all times and under all conditions. Quite I'm, frightening. That's frightening, all right. He knows if you've been good or bad, knows your deepest inner thoughts. Mike C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, is here. But he'd, he'd love to know your deepest inner thighs. And my deepest inner thighs. Ah. Uh, you know, size, S-I-G-H-S, matter. Size matter. Hi there. I am the legendary Burl Bear, Howard Lapidus, manager to every burglar and safe cracker in the world. He's not here today. I don't know where he is. He's off doing something exciting. And uh, all the way from the woods outside of San Diego... The former crime vixen of Las Vegas, <laughs> Kathy Scott. Kathy Scott. Hello hey, there. Paul, how are you? I'm fine. Here I called you the former crime vixen of Las Vegas. Well, I'm not a former crime vixen, but I'm no longer in Las Vegas. Yes. I still write about Las Vegas, but yeah, no, I'm here in Mountain View, San Diego County. Yeah, well, you and your dogs are in the woods, hiding out. <laughs> that we are. That you are hiding out, you and the dogs, hiding well, out. Well, if you would stop stalking the woman, she I wouldn't have to well, hide out. I know people think I stalk you because of all the pictures online of one of me stabbing you with my glasses, another one of looks like a menage de trois with Leonard Bouchel <laughs> in a hotel in Vegas. That, that's that Christmas photo was great of you, you taking a knife and, you know, a carving knife and uh, <laughs> shaming, stabbing me. That was quite a picture. Yeah, well, that's appropriate for Christmas. <laughs> if you're crime writers. You've been a fake busy... Fake news. Fake news. You, yeah, fake, fake news. No, we had Joe Bruno on. Uh, the, he's a uh, very peculiar and entertaining journalist from New York who wrote a book on fake news. Uh <laughs> And the book is called something like Donald Trump, War of uh, Against the Left's Fake News or something. And I said, uh, Joe, give us a perfect example of fake news. And he did. But I was totally surprised by what he used as the example. And that was, he starts laughing, he goes, have you seen all these stories about, uh, what's her name? She's got a three-part name, something, something, Cortez. Oh, you mean, uh, yeah. Um, our, our oh, new AOC, AOC. Yeah. Uh, he says, all these stories, one right after the other, that she said this and she said that, says, are all fake. And I says, yeah, I noticed that because I read what people actually say. And the headlines, he says, yeah, he says, despite the title of my book, he says, the best example of fake news is this nonstop barrage of fake stories about her. And I said, well, Yeah, what? they can't find any real dirt on her. So that, that's Ocasio-Cortez. Um, they can't find any fake, any anything real, so they make it up. Make it up. And it's it's interesting the way that stuff gets put out on the internet. Although I think 
some of the social media sites are clamping down a little bit on it. Yeah, well, supposedly uh, YouTube and Facebook are. But the guy for here in Orange County, I think it was, who got $10,000 for making up that com- absurd story of George Soros paying protesters. And he, got, he made $10,000 in one week selling that story. Amazing. Amazing. And, he said, yeah. and he said the reason he came up with that is he, he wanted a story that if you stopped and thought about it for more than 30 seconds, you'd realize it was completely absurd. Yeah. And nobody pretty, stops to think. Oh, you, if people do their own research, they find out that it's fake. You know, yeah. I've got a few friends who... Over on, you know, they're a little. Our our, our politics are different, and um, one of them one day put something up, and I just wrote, you know, this is not a real story. This is not, you know, go read the Onion, which is really where that satire belongs. But, um, you know, she was, oh, I, I saw it, and it looked real. Yeah, it looked good. <laughs> so much of what I see, my spark boy, there on the news. Um, would have been fodder and silliness from The Onion, and it, now it's real. That's the problem with comedy. That almost makes it difficult, although I read something really funny. I can't remember it now, but I read something really funny up The Onion uh, last week. I never read it, and I just stumbled on it. But when you read it, you know it's, it's not true. You know, they, they do it so satirically that you absolutely know it's not true, and you slap all the way through it. I like the Onion TV news where they had the giant slut spill on the uh, 405. <laughs> <laughs> Your mind is always in the gutter. Always in the gutter, girl. Yeah, <laughs> but I enjoyed it. Here they're trying to clean up all the sluts that fell off the VH1 truck. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Anyway, you've been on TV a lot, and not because... Uh, uh, yeah, fair enough. Well, you were on the What's Her Name show talking about some horrifying thing. Marsha Clark about yeah. the, um, yeah, about the Rebecca um, Zahow case and the, um, yeah, and, and her um, in, in um, just tell us, tell us about that case. Uh, well, she, you know, she was she was found bound by the feet and hands, naked, hanging from the balcony in uh, 2011. That must be suicide. She was bound and gagged naked, hanging from the balcony. She must have done that to herself. Yeah, at a Coronado mansion, the Spreckles mansion. And um, it was was an interesting case because Coronado PD is a small police department. I, you know, I was just there recently. And... They immediately, almost immediately, um, turned it over to the sheriff's department. And I, San Diego County Sheriff's Department, I thought, great. I covered the sheriff's department in the homicide division quite a bit when I was a reporter in San Diego County in the early days of my career. And, um, that, you know, I, I you get to know that, you get, as you know, you get to know those um Investigators really well. You see them at scenes and news conferences. There, you know, you stop by their shop and you, you know, you to do your daily beat and reporting. And they immediately, within a week, um, a week for an investigation, deemed it a suicide. And it was what? It was. It was just a head shaker. 
and um, shut everybody down too. And it, um, as far as reporting about it, talking about it, um, just you know, tidied it up, and that was that. She she was thirty, I think, thirty two years old, and not from here, um, but um, was a girlfriend of a pharmaceutical. Um, millionaire, multi-millionaire, who is the CEO of one of the top that's, um, that's nice work if you can get it. Like campaign contributions, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting because the district attorney, um, you know, they they want it. They, well, I can tell you a little background. The brother of um, Jonah, Shaq, who was the live-in boyfriend of Rebecca, who died, um, Adam, uh, Adam Shackney, the brother, is the one who found her body, hanging naked body. I listened to the 911 call and also um, saw the interview of him by the, um, oh, it was a um, lie detector test. So it was, the, it was the questioner of the lie detector test who was asking him questions. Of course, they paid for it, so... And then just asked them nice softball questions. But the 911 call was interesting because as he was calling, as he was talking to the emergency 911 operator, he was cutting her down. He so he cut her down. He didn't even leave her there before. And guess what kind of knots she had? Um, they were nautical knots. Uh, she was tied with shoot shanks and um, float hitches. Nautical rope, nautical rope from a you know marine rope. And guess what? Adam Shackney, the guy, and he he was in a guest house staying with the family he had gotten there that day. And um, guess what he did for a living? Tugboat captain. Oh, that's weird. Well, and she's tied up with marine rope. Where would she get marine rope? Yeah, where'd she I get mean, it? I think I killed myself. Let me go find a tugboat. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, it was, it was the sad thing is, I mean, the whole case is sad, but the sad thing is Rebecca was living with Jonas Shackney and his, his young boy, I, uh, he was a young boy, six, six or nine, and was playing around and went over the balcony a few days earlier, went over the balcony and died. He was in a, at the point when Rebecca was killed, he was still in a, in a coma. Um, no sense, you know, she was, she was absolutely killed. I think it was a homicide, but, um, some, uh, the family, her family claimed that it was a retaliation for, for the little boy Max's accident because she was babysitting for him at the time. But you know, when you're babysitting, you know, you know, a six-year-old, you, you, it's not a two-year-old. You don't keep your eye on them constantly. They're just doing their thing, and you, you know, they run around the house or whatever it is they do. But um, it was a sad case all the way around. But I do. Uh, the case was just settled, by the way. The family filed a wrongful death against Adam Chaffney, the brother, who got the house and found the body, and. They just settled very quietly earlier this year for six hundred thousand dollars. Well, without any. That was interesting. Well, he, they went to court and won a wrongful death. There was no uh, criminal case, but there was a civil case, and and the family of Rebecca filed a lawsuit and won 
the jury ruled that he was responsible for her death, and then they they uh, and then they were more talk and everything going on. They they were awarded and they didn't. He didn't cough up any money, and so there was a settlement. The settlement was made by the insurance company representing him, not um, not by him personally. So he didn't. He suffered no losses. The guy who is alleged to have done it. Well, <clears throat> what the five million no dollars? Where did that come from? Oh, go ahead. Say it again. What about the? Where did the five million dollars come from? What five million? Wasn't there a five million dollar judgment? No, yeah, I think there was a six. judgment. They said the insurance company. There was a judgment. The insurance company settled uh, with the family very quietly for six hundred thousand dollars. I think that was in February of this year. Uh -huh. So it didn't make any news, and then Adam was all picked off afterward because he wasn't consulted. So we had an insurance. Would that be nice if you got sued? To have a, you must have had an umbrella policy, but to have, have an insurance company, you know, pay on your behalf. So um, they settled. 600000 isn't much, but it's better than nothing. Huh. So weird. This reminds me there was, a, her. there was a case, remember Susan Murphy Milano, I'm sure you remember her. She had a case out of Oklahoma. Oh, yeah, she was a friend. She was yeah, a friend. Dear friend, both of us. She was in Oklahoma, and they had a case where this person had been shot several times in the back and it was ruled suicide. Oh, that sounds like an old-time Vegas ruling. You know, a person is shot in the head, no gun is found in the desert, and they rule it a suicide. Yeah. And then the other one was, was where there were lot, two years, different years calibers of bullets general. in the person's head. Say what? Two different caliber bullets. Yes. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah, this must yeah, be suicide. They shot themselves with one gun and... That didn't work, so he got a different caliber, got a shot. Exactly. Yeah, Susan Milano, um, Susan Murphy Milano was so good at going after, of course, her parents, you know, her dad, you know, killed her mom in a in a, a murder-suicide, and she found, she's the one who found their bodies, and, you know, Susan, rest in peace, bless her heart, but she, um, she went after the Chicago PD because he, you know, her, her father, uh, was uh you know used to beat her mom up all the time and the cops would come she'd call the police kind yeah, of who are you gonna call me. when the police are beating you up well he was a police officer her father was yeah. and then her mother when she was being beaten up she would call the police and they would come smile pat him on the back and leave yeah. and so she blamed them so she she you know she made a career out of out of keeping track of the, the chicago pd and giving them a hard time she should, keeping it honest. Yeah, well, I remember she told me that one of the cops told her, keep her mouth shut, or she'd wind up like her parents. Yeah, she was very public, though. You know, she blocked it out a lot. She'd go on TV. She was very, very public. So, um, you know, she uh, she wasn't afraid of anybody, as you know. Yeah. Well, as we, excuse me while I choke on a piece of chicken here, as we true crime authors are prone to say, when you get death threats, you know you're on the right track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've all had a few of those. Those of us who reported on from the streets, you know, we've all had those. You know, that it's uh, yeah, it just almost spurs you on. And you know, we're high profile, so it makes it it easier. But it's almost you know, come on down. 
kind of thing, you know. We don't back off easily. Yeah, I'd say here, here on True Crime Uncensored, we haven't had any of our guests actually be, be killed because they've come on the show. Uh, <laughs> destroyed a few careers, but not their actual life. We have had uh, a few people who were threatened with death uh, in advance of coming on the show. Uh, really? Yeah. Uh, the woman who wrote Vegas Ragdoll uh, had a couple phone calls uh, saying, uh, listen, uh, bitch, you go, you go on Burl's show, and uh, it's the last thing you'll ever do, blah, blah, blah. And this well, is, I know her. Um, actually, she wanted me to write the book. Wendy, Wendy I, Mazzaros. I yeah. yeah, Wendy. And I've been on a, I was on a panel with her as well, but you know, I did meet with her early on when she was starting to write the book. But, I, you know, all those gangsters are dead or in prison. So yeah. I'd be, yeah, I'd be that, surprised. The one that, that was giving her a bad me. time was the guy who was supposedly on the grassy knoll in Dallas. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, but I, I mean, I don't know what kind of things she actually came out with in the book. I mean, how much did she really know? And it's so old. The stuff is so dated, and, and all those monsters are dead or in prison or close to death. You know, they're all, I yeah, think, her, her, her living boyfriend, I think, was, um, she calls him her husband, but I think he he's still in prison, but he, you know, he's got to be like 80 years old. Yeah, when you're now an 80-year-old murderer, you kind of stop being so cranky. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't have a lot of movement inside the prison walls, you know what I mean? Not a lot you can do no, on the no. outside when all the mobsters you used to deal with are dead. Yeah, interesting that uh, Pavle Stadamirovic, our, our friend Punch, the uh, reformed uh, diamond thief, he said that in prison, the guys who were big shots in prison aren't big shots on the outside. The guys who were big shots on the outside keep a really low profile in prison. It's just the opposite. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because they don't, yeah, they don't, they don't want to get dead. Yeah. So they, just gotta, so they, don't, they don't make any mistake. Yeah, they, they go along. Yeah, they keep everything real cool and quiet. For good time, yeah, yeah. instead of bad time down in, in prison. Fortunately, I've never been in prison. I was just in jail once on a bogus charge <laughs> for a few hours. <laughs> I've been to visit a few. Yeah. I've visited a few, but in, in both federal, state, and uh, county jails. Yeah, I've, so. never, I've only been in a local one. I was in Linwood, Washington. That's where ah. the public defender is only there for you if you're pleading guilty, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, they like to plead people out, like to clean them out, get it over with. Yeah, they're not, the, see, the rule is, is they only have to be there in court so many hours, and they schedule the people pleading not guilty for late in the afternoon, which is after the public defender has already put in their time. So if you're pleading not guilty, you don't get a lawyer. Yeah, yeah, terrible, terrible. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the other case, too? Yeah, let's talk about some more. <laughs> What else you got? Hey, what? Well, the um, I don't know if you're familiar with the two Torrey Pines murders cases on Torrey Pines State Beach between Del Mar and uh, La Jolla. One was in uh, teenage girl, uh, 15, uh, Barbara Nantes in 1978. The other one was Claire Huff, 14 years old. They looked alike, long, light brown hair, um, and older than their years they looked and both of them found beaten to death mutilated 
um, the breast and um, strangled to death six years apart, 1978 and 1984, and the um, San Diego PD deemed um, that they were connected because of the uh, they're bound, found the bodies were found within 200 yards of the other all six years apart um, and the man who found Claire the one in 1984 and, and called the police and met them there was quite a character and was it was a person of interest for a short time, but they said he was 61 years old at the time, I think. He um, didn't fit the profile of a killer, so they they didn't, they did not check under his fingers, fingernails, they did not check his clothing, they didn't search his house, which was just up the road, um, and um, Claire, Claire, one of the girl's purses was missing and um, they didn't do any of that to see if Jeez. maybe it was in his house. And Claire, the the one girl in order to get, she had snuck out of her, she was from Rhode Island, and she had snuck out of her parents, her grandparents' home where she was staying, you know, for vacation near the beach. And she walked to the beach, and in order to get there, she had to go past this one man who found the body, Wally Wheeler, found her body, had to go past his house in order to get there. Um, so the so DNA was done. No, um, no. I mean, no sperm was found on her or the other girl. Um, they had DNA, of course, um, and they did they did the DNA test. And um, but it was early years, you know, so they decided to do a DNA test again. The first girl, most of the DNA was gone, but they still had some. And um, lo and behold, a a worker at the San Diego um, examiner's office lab, a CSI worker, forensics worker, uh, one Kevin Brown, his DNA, but it was it was um, oh, what do you call it? Trace DNA showed yeah. up on her genes. And they named from the killer. Another man, sperm showed up on her zipper, I think it was, or the outer clothing, and they can't put... So they named these two guys killers. They had a news conference named them killers, um, and they couldn't put the two men together. And so let me backtrack. They named them killers after they both were dead. Oh, that's convenient. Yeah, so the, so the one guy lived in Nebraska who had a violent, he attacked, he had a violent rape incident where he attacked a, a girl rather violently in a car, and there was a lot of DNA. So the way they used to do cross-contamination cross is, is the assumed thing, but the way they used to, to hold the swabs of DNA at the at the San Diego Medical Examiner's Office was, you know, in in a jar, but the jars weren't covered, and um, and you guys know this that any time a CSI person shows up in DNA from a crime lab, um, they always roll them out because they donate bodily fluids for testing and and testing against other uh, similar 
things, and so there's cross-contamination. And the lab is the result of this case. The San Diego CSI lab, a medical examiner's lab, stopped doing things the way they used to because of cross-contamination. So these two men were dead, and, and poor Kevin Brown hanged himself. And the day or two after hanged himself in the Cuyamaca Mountains near his family's cabin, he, um, about three miles from me, he, um, they came out and announced that they were just about ready to indict him. They weren't. There was no indictment. And named him and this other guy, um, his name was Tedro, as her killer, but they couldn't trace it to the other girl, and lo and behold, that's when they declared that the cases were not related. Huh. Oh, boy. After the FBI looked at the cases in 90, around 96, the San Diego PD went to them, and they looked at the cases and said they believed that, that uh, the same killer killed both girls. Hmm. So what do we look at? Motive, opportunity, and means, right, Burl? Motive, means, and opportunity. Yep, and who had that? Wally Wheeler. But it's, he had that. It's he was collecting cans back when both girls were killed. He scavenged for cans on the beach. The length of time between the two bothers me. Yeah, the, but yeah, it does. But he was living there at the same time. And uh, so, I mean, it's a weird case, but... Um, but the it was trace evidence DNA on the um, uh, there's more I'm not going to share because I'm writing a book about it. But right. <laughs> there's uh, there was it was trace DNA. It didn't say it was sperm. Mm -hmm. So, but it it's you know and and um, so the wife sued the San Diego PD um, for um, causing her husband's death, causing him because they were. They were after him for a long time, talking to him, interviewing him. They were supposed to go to his house the day he hanged himself mm. and uh, to interview him again. They didn't have any evidence on him, so they couldn't. They didn't have it, and there was no indictment. It was uh, a slam dunk case, and they announced. When you announce you solved the case, and you don't have to go to trial. You don't have to prove it. Yeah. They didn't have to. They didn't have to prove their case. They held a news conference and they haven't talked to reporters since. Well, so just it just doesn't did she pass. Win? Did the wife test, win you know what I mean? Suit? Did she win? I'm sorry. Did the wife win her lawsuit? They knocked it out in court. Tossed it out. They worked it out. No, they tossed out the court ah. case. They threw it out. Too bad. <laughs> well, it's, it's an interesting, you know. I've got I've got a whole lot of documentation and that sort of thing, and there's there's more to the case than, you know, I'm holding back a little bit, but there's there's more to it, um, and and it's uh, I mean it's just sort of bothered me since it just didn't um, make sense, you know. And I've interviewed the family members, and and it's a sad sad case. I was a victim. Another victim. Uh, both girls were uh, on the beach. Claire was just with a boombox sitting on a towel at 11 o'clock at night, um, and she was leaving for leaving for home to go back home uh, the next day. And 
uh, to the East Coast, and the other girl was with her surfer boyfriend and another couple, and they were asleep on the beach, and the, he was beaten, the boyfriend was beaten, and he was 17, I think, at the time, mm. and he lives um, in... Uh, he lives in Southern California and has a plate in his head and um, has been bound and determined, you know, ever since to try to solve her case. You know, you wonder, her case wasn't solved by the PD. They, the San Diego PD, they, it was the other girl. This one is still open as far as their records go. It's yeah. a, an interesting, interesting case all the way around. you got to wonder how many of these unsolved open cases of murder like this exists just in one state of California. Yeah, I know. I don't, I, I don't know. I know there's one in Nevada. It's the Tupac Chacon case. But, <laughs> but the, uh, and we all know who did it, but they just won't say who did it. But um, it's, it's interesting to, to announce that a case has been solved and you don't have to prove it because everybody's dead. Wally Wheeler jumped off a of Wally Wheeler jumped off the balcony two years after the one girl was killed. Um, he uh, he was a, a little off. Um, both girls are dead. That's three people. Um, the Chapo, um named killer now by the San Diego PD of Claire Huff's murder, along with Kevin Brown, they're both dead. And Tato died in a mysterious boat accident in um, Nebraska. So um, five people are dead, and it's you know it's easy as as you know the CSI Kevin Brown's wife uh, told a uh, reporter, uh, it's easy to point at a dead man no, and well, call him a murderer. I do that a lot at home. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I get in trouble, dead. I, I point at dead people. Anybody I can oh. find. He did it. Can't defend himself, but he did it. It's a rough situation. What would we do without crime? We have a hard time. I may have a hard time making a living with crime. What do we do without it? It's a difficult situation. I think it's a strange, strange days of corruption. Well, I think when you've got, yeah, you've got, you know, it just doesn't, just doesn't feel like a. It's not an open and shut case, you know, and you've got cases and you go, oh, good, yeah, they got me. Utah just, um, you know, arrested the killer of a, the alleged killer of a, a college student, you know, the evidence on him and, and did the whole case and they, it, it's open and shut. They found her burnt remains on his property and uh, they didn't go get him right away, you know what I mean? And it's a, it's a heck of a case, and it's a heck of police work they did on that case in nabbing him. Um, but you see real good police work, and then other times you don't, you know? Yeah, it's like the uh, the uh, the case up in Canada where you got the uh, pig farmer or whatever it is, and they just didn't have the resources to investigate it. They had people coming to him going, this guy's killing people. 
<laughs> you know, uh, well, uh, Ted Bundy. I mean, how many? You know, Ted Bundy. You know, there were multiple murders in towns, and people weren't like two plus two equals. Oh, yeah, there was one similar to that in, you know, in California or wherever, Washington State, you know, uh, in Canada, whatever. You know, where Ted Bundy was quite active in all kinds of areas. But I think there's still unsolved murders from him. But it's like they don't reach out to other jurisdictions and say, hey, here's our evidence, what's yours, and put two plus. That didn't yeah, until happen. after That's the fact, and then they want to close all their open cases. <laughs> yeah, yeah, close, uh, close, uh, uh, I mean, to, to uh, I mean, I, I believe that they saw his, his DNA and they should have immediately ruled it out as contamination. And because it was trace, it wasn't sperm, it was trace. It could have been from his blood, who knows what it's from, but he had donated blood and bought it bodily fluids to the, as other CSI people had. And, and whenever that happens, you can look it up. Um, in different cities say that whenever a CSI person shows up on DNA, when they're testing it, they rule them out. Yeah. And in this case, they did. They made, they tried to make it work, but they can't put so two people supposedly killed her, kind of huff, Pedro out of Nebraska who visited San Diego, but they can't place it at the beach, and they can't place Kim Brown at the beach, and they can't place those two men together. They didn't know each other. Yet the two of them together killed one girl. It, 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 now, there's so many holes in it, it's, it's leaking like a said. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's, what, what was their motive? Oh, yeah, there's, there's no, they don't have any. Well, they did say that Kevin, well, the only dirt they could find on him, if you even call it dirt, was he went to strip clubs. Kevin went to some strip clubs. Well, that's perfectly legal. God, hang him by the fingernails, you know what I mean? And that's legal, though. What's wrong with that? I mean, I'm kidding. I'm It'd be kidding. boring, but... Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, well, it's legal. So it was, yeah, they were saying that, oh, well, he likes, likes girls. Well, you Men go to strip clubs sometimes, you know, so um, that it's not a crime. So it, it, that's the worst they could get on him. And, um, you know, so good on his wife for filing suit against the San Diego PD, but they, they threw it out. But they tossed the, the lawsuit out. But um, it's, there are a couple of other things that did come up later, but I'll, I'll share them in the book. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm working on a book proposal right now for it. So, hey, well, there, there was a, a uh, there was a case you were working on. And I don't think you wound up doing a book on it, but you were doing the yeah, case. Yeah, there was one, uh, uh, Doris Payne, um, but um, that uh, yeah, that the one, one did the, it. Uh, uh, where the 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 body was uh, discombobulated in the uh, in the cookery or something. <laughs> Where they melted down the body in the restaurant or something? It was weird. Oh, oh, that one. Oh, yes, that was the one in, uh, in, uh, on the beach. Yeah, that was the slow cooker. Yeah. He took his, uh, that was, uh, that was, uh, Viennes, David Viennes, V-I-E-N-S, and his, his poor wife. Um, he, he killed her, and then he put her in a 50-gallon, he was a chef at their restaurant, he put her in a 50-gallon cooker and uh, put her on the stove and slow cooked her for four days while the restaurant was open. He did not serve her up. He did not serve her up. Uh, but 
Um, oh, save the best stuff for a, himself. Yeah. yeah, and the thing is, the police, they suspected him from the start, yet they weren't they weren't checking his trash. He just, he put, he put the, the bones in the trash. He just threw them away in his dumpster in the back of his, you know, that was like a week, a week after she died. So they suspected him from the start, um, yet they didn't, um, they didn't keep eye on, an eye on his, on his trash. Don't cops do that? Yeah, they just let him, let him slip, slip sliding away. They let it slip sliding away, yeah. And so they did it. They did finally get. Um, it was a fascinating case. So I went to his um, uh, one of his hearings, and it was uh, absolutely fascinating case. But um, he's he is in jail, but he only got because he didn't have the body. Um, they they it was all circumstantial. Plus they had it. He he admitted it to his daughter, and she testified against him. Um, oh, not his daughter, a daughter from a previous marriage. And um, I think he only got 12 years or something. He's crazy as a loon. But um, he's the one who I told you about. He he, um, he, he fired his attorney and, and um, he protested something that, that the, that the uh, district attorney said. He was in a wheelchair um, <laughs> because he had jumped off a cliff to... Uh, tried to get away from cops right. and broke a few bones. And he was in a wheelchair in the courtroom, and they said he couldn't walk. And he protested something, jumped out of the wheelchair, and said, I, you know, <laughs> objection, Your yeah, Honor. Objection, Your Honor. I'm standing like, up here to tell you that, oops. <laughs> that's a yeah, like that's a comedy. Now, that's going to go in. I don't think I have enough for a full-length book, but that'll be part of an anthology probably published by... Um, uh, our friend, our mutual friend, Greg Olson's uh, Crime Rant book. That's good. That's good. Label. So it'll probably come out of his publishing house, his little one. Great. So Great. I may I may include that as an anthology. You know, in an anthology, I'll get it out there. Some, you know. Hey, I had to wait. To to, what was it? Twenty years, something like that, for my story on the Alaska mail bomb conspiracy to come out. Because when I first was writing the book. The publisher went to prison. Bum. I hate it when that happens. Yeah, publisher went to prison, <laughs> and by manuscript was held up in court as an asset of the publishing company until you know. It was oh, all... so you were tied. You were tied up. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't do anything with the story. Yeah. <laughs> how'd you get? Good. How'd you get the rights back? Uh, well, the when they finally rights. resolved the the. The bankruptcy case of the publishing company, because the publisher went to prison for a certain number of years for embezzlement, supposedly, allegedly. Well, when they finally distributed everything, I got the rights back, and that's when uh, a few years later, R. Barry Flowers got hold of me uh, for that book, uh, Masters of True Crime. And went, oh, I know what I could. I've got this. Okay, story. now that, that that was in the um, Masters of True Crime book, in which I was in as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was a, that was a great book, and it was nice to be included with you. We had a yeah, was two fun. of the friends in there with us. Yeah, yeah, very good book. Beautiful fact, book. Uh, Did a beautiful job on that book. I keep I keep getting after our Barry Flowers to do to, another uh, one. Have Barry uh, come out with another an, an, anthology. Yeah. He was going to a while back. Yeah, in fact, I was I uh, was interviewing uh, Camille Kimball on the show because she had a story in there. Uh, 
uh, in that same anthology. And so we're all saying yeah. that uh, our Barry Flowers should put out another one because that, that first one was really good. Yeah, it was. It was really good. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was. He was going to at some point, and um, I, I I don't know what came of it. But um, yeah, it would be nice. He did a beautiful. It was a beautiful job, and the choice of authors in there I thought was a great. It great, was a good great mix of people. It was great a good diversity book. of stories too. You had good authors. I was proud to be included in it, and a real yeah, wide range too. of stories. So, yeah, something there for everybody. So I finally got to so use the Alaska mail bomb case in that anthology. So it wasn't a total waste. And the great thing was is that Jim Bordenay, who was uh, the head of PR for the uh, United States Postal Inspectors, uh, he had retired. But boy, that guy had a mind like a steel trap. He remembered everything about that case, and he went over everything with me before uh, I had uh, our Barry Flowers publish it to make sure it was 100% accurate in everything. Right. And boy, that's a blessing. That is a blessing when you have that. Yeah, I've, I've, yeah, I've got that in a couple of cases I'm working on right now, and it's it's wonderful when you have that. You have family members, and you have you know other people who who were there. You know what I mean? And it's it's nice to have have all of that. We do do our homework, don't we? Yeah, you know I, I always loved research. It was one of my favorite. Yeah, I things. do too. I love the research. Yeah. And then when uh, I moved down to California, and I realized I did not have the contacts here that I had in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, in the Pacific well, it's a whole different world. California is a whole different world. Yeah, yeah. I I did that when I moved back from. Vegas in 2014 to San Diego, you know, I, I had to reconnect with, uh, of course, a lot of the cases are out of town, but whole different, you know, asking for information. Yeah, and different dynamics um, entirely. Uh, San Diego County's been pretty good in getting, I've gotten police reports, I've gotten death, you know, the medical examiner reports. They're right. very... Where I was very fortunate is that I hooked you have to go up undercover with, uh, to get stuff. with Frank C. Gerardo, Jr., who was already super connected uh, down here in California. And mm -hmm. so when we did A Taste for Murder and uh, Betrayal in Blue, which are two full-length books we've done together, uh, he had all yeah, the contacts. He knew everybody. They knew him. It made life so much easier <laughs> to have someone who already, you know, knew the ropes down here because I would have had to start all over again. And... Yeah, I tell you, you have to you have to make new sources all over again. Yeah, it's a tough, uh, you know, and then finding the ropes of, you know, figuring out the ropes of how they do it in another state. It's tough. It's tough to uh, well, it's super back difficult. into it again. I don't know if you ever tried to do a book in Kansas, but uh, Kansas, Kansas. No. Uh, I didn't do a book in Kansas because in beginning my research, I discovered that when you ask for a police report, you get the cover page, and that's it. Yeah, are completely redacted. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So don't get anything. Well, yeah, the good thing is if you can get if you can get the medical examiner's report, then the, you know a lot of police um, cases inside the medical examiner's report. Mm -hmm. So that's always a, a nice thing to get. So what's your take on the uh, Zayhow Zayhow case out of Coronado? Well, you got me on anything. I don't. I don't have any takes on anything these days. <clears throat> well, he was there for uh, less than a day. He That's came and he was visiting. He was staying in the guest house. Uh, um, if you think it was, you know, revenge for the boy's death, 
So the so the boyfriend calls his brother and says, "Come out! Would you knock the girlfriend off for me?" I, I, I'm trying to have I'm having a hard time following that. Yeah, well, he the, the boy was in the hospital, and so the the brother came out, and then the and then the boyfriend was at the hospital. I believe that night he had he had an alibi because he was at the hospital, right. and the whole family was there because the boy was in a coma, and so they're you know standing vigil in the hospital, and so it was just Dayhow at the house, and his brother and his brother. Um, the visiting brother was staying in the guest house on the property that's behind the balcony where she was tossed off. Neighbors reported at something like 3 in the morning or whatever it was, hearing um, loud music to the point where it was, you know, off the, off the top. So I don't know if there's something going on. He was trying to cover it up with music, but that's all they heard was loud music woke up the neighborhood. Well, that's so, one way of getting attention. <coughs> well, you know, she had, it took a little effort to tie the, you know, the, the rope was, the nautical rope was tied to um, bed, the master bedroom bed, and then run through the balcony doors. And this is a tiny, you know, this teeny tiny balcony, and then it was high. Um, so she supposedly tied herself up Tied herself up, bound, and she was gagged. And gagged, too. And then her hands tied behind her back. Her And, her, and then how did she reach her leg over the balcony to go over it and fall over when she was tied? And the odd thing was that, that didn't, that, I know it came out in the court case, her feet were bound with, her ankles were bound with duct tape because the duct tape was removed and there was residual duct tape sure. glue on her ankles. Who, what woman puts duct tape around her ankles? And then just, so it's like she was tied up earlier so that he could do the nautical rope or something. He, he, he bound That's, her. I, I mean, no, he, on, he's not, on. he's still considered a suspect. He's not considered a suspect by the police, but he's, he's, still thought of as a... Person of interest. Well, person of interest, I mean, a a jury found him responsible in the civil court. It's like O.J. Simpson wasn't found guilty in a criminal court, but he was found responsible in in a civil court, just like... Yeah, but you got um, lower standards there. Jack Nye. So, yeah, so he, um, he, you know, so it appears as if... You know, he, he, you know, for, you know, all, all evidence points to it, but that it's circumstantial, but, um, you know, he's the guy who found her, too. You know, he starts tying her down and, you know, messing with evidence almost from the start. Yeah, moral of the story is if you find dead people, don't touch them. Yeah, you, I mean, if you're at the house and you're only there with her, you're going to be an instant suspect anyway, I guess, unless you, your brother owns a pharmaceutical company. Yeah, big bucks. I don't know what the, you know. It just gets too strange for me. It's an odd <laughs> case. It's an odd case. Yeah, and sometimes so it's just, you just it's gotta... Sticky. If the people are well-connected socially also, that has another dimension to who's doing what to who. 
And I think it changes the investigation and how they look at it when you've got a powerful person. I just think they don't necessarily, um, you know, it was his girlfriend who was killed, but it was brother, his brother who was at the house. Uh, but I, I just, it just didn't, the case didn't follow what they typically do. And I saw the San Diego Sheriff's Department do tons of homicide cases and work the cases, and this one was not worked the way I was used to seeing it done. Yeah, there was a, so a case up in Tacoma, Washington. I don't know the exact details, but I do recall something very significant, and that is the uh, the police testified that they had this particular uh, suspect under surveillance for days, entire time, 24-7. And afterwards, I, I went down to the detective's office, and I said to my uh, my contact there, we got along very well, I said, uh, uh, if you had this guy under your surveillance 24-7 from such and such a date, you would have been watching when he allegedly went and took the body and did this and that and the other thing. In other words, yeah. it was BS. You know, the cops were lying on the stand. You're setting this guy up. And this detective, and he and I get along very, very well. And he's, uh, you know, he's helped, been helpful to me and I've been helpful to him. But it was blatant that there was lying in the courtroom. They're setting this guy up. And he couldn't look me in the eye. He looked out the floor and he said, well, we closed the case. Wow. <clears throat> I've never, <clears throat> in all the six years I've been doing this with Burl, I, I've never come to grips with law enforcement that's more interested in the conviction than the truth. I, I just don't get it. What does it make a difference? If you get the person that's guilty instead of the person that's innocent so that you get a better mark, wouldn't it be better just to get the guy who did it or the person that's guilty? Yeah, and if it's when you convict the wrong person, you may clear the case, but you've still got a murderer out there doing the same thing. Yeah. Uh, just exactly, yeah. And I've, that, uh, I've certainly never been in the position uh, uh, where you're pressured to close... Uh, and, you know, and you're sitting there with, well, I'm going to get fired if I don't close. I'll tell you, every prosecutor... Well, I think there is. They do want to uh, close cases, you know, and I think that they... I agree there's sometimes pressure to close the case. And like like the wife said in the in Brown case, and, and you know, that uh, in the Tory Pines murder case, it's easy to point a finger at a dead person. Yeah, we had, uh, I'm trying to remember her name, Julie something or other. She's a prosecutor out of uh, back east, I believe. We had on the show several years ago. Anytime we have a prosecutor on, I always ask him the same question. Have you been pressured to prosecute someone that you and your heart of hearts believes is completely innocent? And they've all said yes. And that was the reason that she quit being a prosecutor in that office. Yeah, because they, she they was put, pressured. They, well, that's why we have prisons full of innocent people. You know, people who can't defend themselves, who don't have the money to get a top-notch defense attorney and have to take a public defender. And a public defender just wants the case to go away. And uh, not always, but sometimes. And, um, and a very, you know, and a... It's just, it was just tragic. She had a career as a prosecutor, and she quit. She stopped yeah. her career. She redefined her career because she refused to prosecute someone that she firmly believed was 
had no connection yeah. to it at all. I saw that in the in the, the Binion case in, in Las Vegas with Sandy Murphy and Rick Cabish, who were accused of killing Ted Binion when Ted Binion absolutely died of a drug overdose, and they just threw everything at the kitchen wall on, uh, or the wall and hope from the kitchen sink and hope something would stick. stick. And yeah. they, it just was, uh, I sat through both trials because first there was a mistrial and then another one, hung jury, and then the second trial. And it was unbelievable watching it because it wasn't until they got, um, a, you know, a, a top-notch attorney, Tony Tony Sarah, out of, uh, of California to to represent one of the accused that they got off. It was the only reason. They had to bring in an outsider to make that case right. But they just, the, in the, the, uh, the district attorney, everybody knew it. It was the family pushed to, uh, to do it. So it's weird when you see things like that happen. Yeah, it is, and it's like a train roll and you can't stop it. And you yeah. can see it. You can see what's happening and you're going, oh my God, no. You know, it's like a kid out playing in traffic, and you see a truck coming, and there's no way to pull him out of the way. And yeah, it's a, it's yeah, it's a, it's a it's a treadmill they can't get off of, yeah. and it doesn't end well. And you know, once you get moving in that direction, and it's uh, so thank God for reporters and, and people who and, and those who represent the innocent and and you know pushing pushing before it. And I and I believe even if someone is dead that, you know, as in the Troy Pines murder case, um, that I think the facts ought to get out there, the deeper facts than what just the San Diego PD put out, and and I'm going to push that one home because you know, let the reader decide. I'll just put all the facts out there and let right. the reader decide. But to, you know, for Kevin Brown should be heard, should have his day in court even if he's gone, so I'll do it in a book. Yeah, it's, it's excellent. Uh, yeah, it's tragic because he likes even when the people are gone. But, uh, you know, there's an old biblical thing is you don't put a stumbling block in front of a blind man and you don't curse the deaf. And I say, well, what difference does it make? They can't hear you. That's not the point. <laughs> that's not the point. Well, cursing the deaf, that's, yeah, that's, uh, um, that's another religion, not mine. But, I, you know, I, I, uh, but I've heard that before that you're not supposed to. Yeah. I've interviewed, I interviewed a... Uh, um, a an investigator who um, I was trying to get some information on a case and and he said I can't speak ill of the dead you know it's against my religion I said oh yeah you can yeah you can <laughs> there's a difference between for speaking this, ill of the dead of telling the truth and yeah for the reason tell yeah. the truth you know it's not really speaking ill of them it's just telling the truth telling it yeah. as it was <laughs> yeah but to thing is, is that to, like, mock someone, well, I had this happen because, as you know, I'm very hard of hearing due to an industrial accident in 1974 <laughs> in a radio station. Well, there was this guy that used to insult me behind my back, thinking I couldn't hear him because I'm very, very, very deaf. But he'd whisper. And, and whispering is a different frequency than the normal voice. So I could always hear him. Voices, you know, hush, hush, Burl. Voices, yeah. So he's whispering rude things <laughs> right by, and I could hear every single one of them. And uh, then I really had to debate with myself what to do about it, because he thought I, I couldn't hear him, right? And he's just having this great old time insulting me and saying rude things. 
And uh, it's like someone speaking a different language in front of you, assuming you don't understand them, and then you, you responding do. in that language to let them know. Yeah, well, <laughs> actually, uh, the uh, my dearly departed uh, former bride, uh, her cousin married a guy from Hawaii, uh, Hawaiian native guy, and the last person on earth that you would think could speak Norwegian fluently. <laughs> but but he did. And someone was saying as he passed by the docks and some Norwegian guy was saying all sorts of, you know, horrible racist stuff in Norwegian about him. And he turned and answered him in Norwegian. <laughs> yeah, surprise. Surprise. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a great thing to have happen when you can you know, speak the language. Speak mm -hmm. the language. But those uh, those things happen, and uh, it's it's been better not to say bad things about people. <laughs> I've learned, although I, you know, about the thing is, I was tempted what to do about this guy that kept you know, doing this behind my back. I have all these old things of mace, and I was thinking one day I'm just going to turn around, <laughs> just spray the guy right in the face, and let him whimper and cry about it for a while. But I didn't do it. I'm too polite. And I think it was rescued because the cops came and arrested him for something he'd done five years earlier that he finally caught up with him for. So, served him right. But, you know, you wonder how how cops find out about stuff. Uh, I was called into the ATF one day. Uh, ATF agent wanted to know if it was true that a certain individual had shown me a bullet with my name on it, which he had, and I confirmed that. But I never found out how they knew. It was just too strange. How did they know this guy had shown me a bullet by name on? Oh, it's crap, huh. agents. Well, listen, thanks a lot for uh, giving us a great hour, Kathy. My pleasure, my pleasure. Okay, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go buy all your books, whether they're out yet or not. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Thanks all right. You Take care. Great day. Hey, hey Earl, what's next? Uh, Magic Man Allen, the Demons of Decadence, live in the Lighting Up Lounge. Uh, uh, OutlawRadioLive.com. Dot com. Oh,